if you have a copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We uh, continue our study in the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians 3, and we're looking this morning at verses 12 to 17. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me there. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And as usual, before we read God's word, let's pray. And Pray with me that he would bless the preaching and the hearing of his word, that it would bear fruit, that we would receive it with meekness, and lay it up in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is light and it is life. With Jeremiah the prophet, we say your word was found and I did eat it, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And we would pray that prayer individually here this morning as we come to listen to your word proclaimed. We pray that the gospel would be proclaimed. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless abundantly as the scriptures are read and taught. We pray that, Lord Jesus, you would be heard and that the gospel would be felt in our souls this morning. That you would do in the hearts of the men and women and boys and girls here what only you can do, Lord, for one man plants and another waters, but you give the increase. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look to you this morning for all these things and so much more, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through him, sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but one thing I don't like and have never liked is uniformity in dress. I've never liked uniformity in dress. I've never been a big fan of the uniform. I've never been a fan of school uniforms. I've never really been a fan of dress codes, honestly. There's something about uniforms and dress codes that just feel unnatural. It feels like it's stripping people of their individualism. And yet, and yet, we all have a dress code. And we all hang out with people that have dress codes. And I remember when I was about 19 years old, it hit me that whether you wore baggy corduroys and some hemp jewelry and you look like a hippie or you wore skinny jeans and a flannel shirt and some Woody Allen glasses, you were a hipster. And if you dress like a raver, you look like all the other ravers. And if you dress like a good old boy, you look like a good old boy. If you dress like a sorority girl, you look like a sorority girl. If you dress like a politician, you look like other politicians. If you dress like a mobster in your nice suit, you look like other mobsters. And there is uniformity at every level in the world in dress. There is really no such thing as individualism in the ultimate sense. And if we're honest with ourselves, we model the way we dress to some extent after what others wear and how others dress. And I think that that's actually a helpful thing as we come to this text this morning because Paul has told us 
under that illustration of putting off the old, that, that illustration of taking off old clothes of anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, uh, adultery, fornication, evil desire, taking off those sinful things under that figure of putting off old clothing, he is now going to tell us to put on new clothing. He's not going to leave us there naked, as it were. He's going to tell us that the putting off is not enough, the putting to death is not enough. We must put something on. And there is, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, a Christian dress code. No, it's not what you wear to church on Sunday. Gospel clothing is not what you think it is. Gospel clothing is this list of virtue that Paul lists out here in Colossians 3. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, thankfulness, and joy. That is the gospel clothing that Christians are to wear. And people are going to look at us if we wear those gospel clothing, and they're going to see a measure of uniformity. They should see a measure of conformity to Jesus in all these things and a measure of uniformity. Well, today we're going to see three things. First, we're going to consider what Paul says here about who ought to be putting on, who ought to be putting on these gospel clothes. And then he's going to describe for us what the gospel clothing looks like. And then he's going to tell us the effect of wearing these gospel clothes. Who ought to wear it? He's going to describe what they are. And then he's going to give us the effect of wearing gospel clothes. Well, notice in verse 12, there's a hinge. Paul has had that that list of vices, and he's told us very clearly we're to put off all those things because we've died with Jesus, we've been raised with him. He doesn't tell us, just try in your own strength not to sin. He says, you've died to sin's power, and so now kill those things, mortify those things, put them off, but he doesn't leave us there, does he? Paul now turns around and he says, and put on, put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved. There are actually three descriptions here of who is to put on. They are... They are the elect. They are those that God chose in eternity in his son, Jesus. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It is the election of grace that Paul speaks of in Romans eleven six. It is the election that Paul speaks of in Romans 9. It is the election that makes grace a big G grace. We have a big G grace because we understand it's nothing we did and it's everything he did even in choosing us for salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. And so the people that are to put these things on are those that have been chosen in Christ. Those that are called here clearly by Paul, God's chosen ones. There's no arguing with that. Paul uses that language uh, without any inhibition whatsoever. He says, put on as God's chosen ones. Now, many people don't like the doctrine of election. And one of their uh, arguments against it is, well, if God chooses you and you don't have a say in it and it's God's choice, that means you can live any way you want and you're going to go to heaven and somebody else can live how they do and they're going to perish because they didn't get chosen. Notice what Paul does. Paul says the elect ones are also holy and beloved. So those that God chose, he also definitively sanctified in Jesus Christ. He set us apart in Christ. He's going to call them at the beginning of this epistle saints. At the beginning of the letter to Colossians, he's going to, he's going to write to the saints, the holy ones. And what he's saying is if you're in Christ, you were elected And you are holy, not perfectly holy in yourself, positionally holy in Jesus. You are set apart. You are saints in Jesus Christ. That's an enormous, enormous thing when that sinks down into your mind. That you, and I think the more we know of how sinful we are, the bigger a thing that is. That you are one of God's holy ones. You are one of his chosen ones. You are one of his holy ones. 
And then Paul says, you are beloved. I think it's interesting. Paul could have just said as the elect put on. He could have just said as those that are sanctified or set apart ones put on. But he adds this third thing. He says, beloved. Because deep down in the deepest recesses of our souls, we need to know that we are loved by God. Now, I don't mean the cheesy kind of way that people say, well, I think God is love. But deep down, they don't really believe God is love because they reject the cross, which is the demonstration of his love. But deep down in our souls as believers, there is a longing to know and a need to know that you are beloved of God, that God loves you, that you are his beloved one. You know, in Hebrew, the word beloved is David, 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 King David was the beloved one, Jesus. The greater David is the beloved one. At his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. At the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now he says to you who are in him, who died with him, who rose with him, you are beloved as he is beloved. In fact, the love that God has for his elect, for those that he sanctifies, for those that he redeemed through Christ, the love is so great that Charles Spurgeon, looking at the cross and looking at the fact that God the Father gave his son to die for you and sacrificed his son at the cross, said, it seems to me when I look at the cross that it seems as if God loves me more than he loves his own eternally begotten son. Now we know he loves us as he loves his own eternally begotten son. But when we look at the cross and we see the love of God demonstrated in the death of Jesus, God is saying to you, you, my son, you, my daughter, are beloved. You are beloved. You are in the deepest, most affectionate way loved by me, and I have shown that in redeeming you. Now, why heap up these three things? Elect, holy, beloved. Because I think that's a necessary formula for us to understand, number one, why we should put on the gospel clothes, and number two, how it is that we are able to put on the gospel clothes. If we forget that, if you forget that you you were chosen, you're going to think it's something you're doing to gain God's favor. If you forget that you were set apart, you're going to live in guilt and shame and fear about your standing before God. If you forget that you are beloved, you are going to try to gain God's favor and try to win his love when he has said, I love you. And you are to know that and psychologically, spiritually, in, in our minds and our hearts, these three things must sink down and we must first apprehend them before we move on to the actual command to put on. And so we know, we know that God has chosen us, has set us apart, and loves us with an everlasting love. And so Paul says, listen, What is fitting for people like this? What is fitting? What's fitting for a king's son to wear? What is fitting for a king's daughter to wear? Well, as much as I don't like dress codes, there is a fittedness, an appropriateness of what a king's son or daughter would wear. When you even today look at the royal family and you see the way that they dress for parties, there's something appropriate about that. They are royalty. There's something right about how they dress. And what Paul is saying is you are God's beloved. You are his children. You are his. You, are, you belong to him. You are the bride of his son. You are sons and daughters of the king. You are chosen by God. And so there is dress. There's a dress code that is fitting for you. And that dress code is everything that Paul now lists, compassion, kindness, 
humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, and joyful singing. I want to say a few things before we look at all these. I think the first thing to notice, if you do notice, is that these are all things that mark out our Lord Jesus, aren't they? If you took this list and you went one by one, okay, let's think about Christ in the Gospels. Was he compassionate? Yes, he was filled with compassion. He was moved with compassion. He had bowels of mercy, is the old King James language. His From inside him, he saw a man with a withered hand, and he was moved with compassion. He he saw the awful effects of death in Lazarus, and he wept. He had compassion for the sick, and he had compassion even for the sinful. He had compassion for the sinful woman who came and wept behind his feet and didn't even think that the hair the, the, the hair that adorned her was too great for her to wash his feet with. He had compassion on those that were in need. He had compassion on a man who 38 years laid by a pool in Bethesda and could not be healed. He had a compassion on a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. He was tired. He was weary. At one point in his ministry, he was so exceedingly worn out. And yet the crowd came to him. And though he was tired and weary, he said he had compassion for them and he fed them and did that great miracle of feeding the 5,000. Compassion is what marked out Jesus. And then consider the next one. Kindness. We think of Jesus, you ought to think of kindness. Not a weak, effeminate kindness. A real kindness. A care. A preference. This is the Savior that taught his disciples to serve one another, to prefer one another, to be kind to one another, to speak kindly to one another, to carry out intentional, not random, acts of kindness towards one another. Jesus was kind. And then notice the next. He was humble. Jesus was humble. In fact, that is the greatest attribute that marks Jesus out. And when Christ speaks of himself, he says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am humble. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says he humbled himself. He who was God became man. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant. God became a bondservant in his humiliation. His whole life was a life of humility. He humbled himself to be born in a feeding trough. He humbled himself to be laid in a grave. God, who gave life and breath to all things, was marked out supremely by humility. Humility. A sinless man was marked out by humility. And then consider the next one, meekness. Meekness is that attribute whereby we are willing to have our will turned and changed. And there in the garden, as Jesus looked into the cup of the wrath of God and saw the foretaste of the cross, and he said, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. That is meekness. That is a willingness that God's will override whatever desire I might have or anything I'd like to do. And Jesus was constantly doing the Father's will. If Moses was the meekest man on the earth, Jesus is infinitely meeker than Moses. He was supremely meek. He was patient. Yes, he railed at his disciples. Yes, he oftentimes rebuked them strongly. He even told Martha she needed to be more like her sister. He said a lot of things that might shock you. And yet, and yet, he was patient, wasn't he? Three years with the disciples. I mean, three years with me, you'd probably lose your mind. Jesus, three years with dudes like me, was patient. Teaching them patiently, correcting them patiently, reminding them 
every step of the way, what he had prepared for them to do. He was patient. He was patient in his mission. He was patient in not going to the feast when it wasn't his time to go. He was patient in not turning stones into bread. He was patient in not showing off his power before the devil's temptation and throwing himself off the temple. He was patient. Every step of the way in his ministry, Jesus Christ was patient. And then notice. Notice what he says. Forgiving one another. He was the supreme example, wasn't he? As he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them. He went around forgiving the sins of those that came to him for forgiveness. Not one person that came to Jesus for forgiveness left without getting that forgiveness. And then, notice verse 14, above all these things, put on love. I don't even need to tell you that Jesus was loving. He is love. He is the example of love. If you want to know what love in action looks like, you look at Christ. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Everything that Jesus did, even when Jesus ministered to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler walked away in self-righteousness, the gospel writers said, and Jesus loved him. It's not with a saving love. He ministered in love to him. He did everything that he did in love to God and in love to his fellow creatures, even when he railed on the Pharisees. That was done out of a purpose of love to correct the wicked soul damning errors of men that were jeopardizing his messianic ministry. And then notice, notice finally what Paul says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ. Now, this is not that inner peace, that, that sit by a lake with a fishing pole and a, a drink peace. <laughs> this is not that kind of peace. I had to pick my words carefully. It's not that kind of peace. This is, this is the peace that we have with God. He had peace with God. He created peace for us. We'll come to that in a second. What I want to say is if you take all these things and you look at them in Jesus, you know where they're displayed the most? They are set out on display most fully at the cross. Look at this. When was Jesus most compassionate towards you? At the cross. When was Jesus kindest to you and me? At the cross. When was Jesus most humble? When he hung on the tree, naked, reproached, beaten and shamed for you and me? When was Jesus most meek? At the cross. When was Jesus most patient? At the cross. When did Jesus both forgive and provide forgiveness? At the cross. When did Jesus make peace for us? At the cross. And then notice, and then notice that the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 12, you, united to him, elect in him, put those things on now. It's as if he's saying, look, I know that all of you are going to dress like somebody. I know that all of you like the way somebody dresses, and you're going to say, I want to look like them. I think that looks cool. And he's going to say, Jesus is dressed the way we need to be dressed. It's his compassion, his kindness, his meekness. It's not you in its self-effort attempting to define and produce these things in your life. It's not. It's looking at him and it's coming to him and believing in him and resting in him and putting on the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians in the church, 5th century, um, very wicked man, had different lovers, 
rebelled greatly for 15 years. Read his confessions. If you've never read it, it's one of the most rewarding books you could ever read. And he tells about his conversion. And Augustine is in shackles because Augustine is enslaved to, to lust and he has a concubine and he can't, he can't let go of her and he wants to be free and he's got a guilty conscience and he's wrestling, but he, he can't break it. And one day he's out walking and this is what he says. He says, I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter condition of my heart when I heard from a neighborhood house a voice, as of a boy or a girl I do not know, chanting and often repeating, take up and read, take up and read. Instantly my countenance altered and I began to think most intently whether children really played or sung such words, and I couldn't remember ever hearing anything like this. So checking the torment of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God, be careful with that, but it worked here, to open the book and read the first chapter, I should. So he, he had a, a Bible, and he said, I'm just going to open it. And he opened it, and it was Romans 13. And this is what he read. He read, do not conduct yourselves in riding and drunkenness, in, um, this is old English, sorry, chamber, chambering and wantonness, strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Paul is telling us in Colossians 3, the same thing he says in Romans, the same thing that Augustine was converted by. He's saying, put on the Lord Jesus. Put on the gospel clothes of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say a few things to you by way of application. One, I think that these things are rare, even in our fellowship. I'm not going to act like our fellowship's any better than any other fellowship. I think these things are rare. I think they're rare in our lives. I think we know that they're rare. I think that we feel how rare they are in the way that we respond to things. I believe that we oftentimes look at a list like this and think, I wonder why so-and-so isn't more like that towards me. Why aren't they kinder and more compassionate and meeker towards me and more patient towards me instead of thinking, am I kind and compassionate and meek towards them? I think our default as fallen sinners that love to fall back to self-righteousness is, why are they not kinder to me? Listen, I'm including myself. If you feel guilty, that's good. Because I feel guilty about this often. That's why we go back to Christ, why we go back to the cross, why we pursue these things in our lives. And I think there has to be an intentional pursuit of these things in our lives. Paul gives us these lists so that we would not look at others and say, how are they like that towards me? But how am I doing with these things? Am I putting these things on? Am I dressing myself in the morning in these things? There's an old Puritan, and I, I think he went a little too far, but there's an old Puritan who wrote a book about spiritual clothing and spiritual dressing, and he would say, you know, get up, get up in the morning, and he'd say, oh, Father, as he put his shirt on, clothe me with the righteousness of your son, and then he'd put some other garment on and say, Lord, you know, gird my feet with the gospel of peace, and, that's, and he, he encouraged people to do that, and it's a bit hokey. I agree it's a little hokey. But it's good if we did that, if we took these things and we actually said, am I putting on the garment of compassion? Am I putting on the garment of kindness, of meekness, of patience, of humility, of forgiveness? Notice how what we wear affects one another. It's inevitable that we are going to have a dress code in this church and it's going to affect each other. It's impossible for you to wear what you want to wear and not have an impact on others. And Paul says, for that reason, forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. When someone cannot forgive another Christian who has asked for that forgiveness, when they cannot forgive, that is a very dangerous place because that 
If, if someone does not forgive others, let me say this emphatically, it means you are not forgiven by Jesus. If you are not a person that forgives people, it means you have never been forgiven. Nick Bassig didn't say that. Jesus said that. Whoever does not forgive will not be forgiven. doesn't mean you forgive to get forgiveness. It means that we show, that we know, that what Paul says here, he says, listen, as Christ forgave you, do you believe that Christ has forgiven you? Then you ought to be forgiving. Do you believe he was kind and compassionate to you in everything that he did and everything that he does? Then we ought to be to one another. And then notice what Paul says. He says there is thirdly fruit that is to be born out of this clothing. In verse 16, some of that fruit comes by way of singing. You might think that's weird. Put on clothes and you sing a certain song. He says you put on all these things and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When I was a new Christian... I had a really good friend who, and I had come out of such darkness, greater darkness than probably most of you in this room have known, great darkness, and I had been converted, and I had a friend, and and he would sit in the car with me, and we'd be driving, and I mean, I was a baby Christian, and he'd be like, hey, let's sing a song together. I was with him last night, he's a church planner now, and, and he'd say, let's sing a song together, and he'd start singing, he gave us beauty for ashes, and he'd start singing these old Baptist hymns that I'd never heard. And something happened. Something happened to me. Those things started to sink down into my heart. We would be in the car driving and singing together. And it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever experienced in my Christian life. Now, sadly, I see a lot of Christians that are ashamed to sing, don't want to sing, complain about singing. And I wonder what that tells us about whether the word of God is dwelling in them richly. Because I think it's impossible. I believe it's impossible for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly and not produce that kind of fruit. It's impossible. If you are so filled with scripture that your heart is overflowing with grace and joy, we will sing and we will want to teach each other how to sing. And then notice what Paul says. He says there at the end, he says, it will also produce thankfulness in your hearts to God. That the end of all those things is that we would thank God, that we would thank God for one another, that we would say, Lord, I am thankful for this one and this one and this one. And that almost never happens in our culture, does it? Lord, I am so thankful for this person. I'm so thankful for the grace that you've given this brother and this sister. And it's the complete opposite, isn't it? Then why aren't they kinder to me? Lord, I'm thankful for them. And then notice what Paul says as he closes. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is going to say is that the clothing we are to put on and the fruit that is to be born is so comprehensive. It's so comprehensive that your whole life, your whole life is absorbed in it. Absorbed in praise to God, a desire for careful words for careful actions that will bring honor to Jesus Christ. Let me say, as we close, number one, this is not how you become a Christian. This is because you are elect, holy, beloved, because you've died with Jesus, you've been risen with him, you're united to him by faith. It's not how you become a Christian. Don't go home and do these things and try to become a Christian. Christians do these things because these are the gospel clothes God's given us. Number two, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sins You need to see, yes, where you failed here, and you need to be converted to Jesus. And as Augustine, at that initial point, read that text, put on the Lord Jesus 
and make no provision for the flesh. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Come to him. Admit that without him, the power of sin will never be broken, no matter how determined you are. You will always be a slave of sin until Jesus Christ brings you from death to life, and you know what it is to then put him on. And then, finally, I want to say, finally, I want to say that I hope that New Covenant Presbyterian and each one of us here, starting with me, will be intentional about caring about how we are putting these things on towards one another. So leave this place thinking, am I putting these Christian virtues on now that I'm in Christ? Am I putting these on in how I speak to so-and-so and so-and-so? Am I putting these things on and being thankful and teaching in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, thinking about each other? The only dress code, let me say this frankly, and you can be mad with me, the only dress code God really cares about besides modesty is this stuff. It's the only dress code. This ought to be your Sunday best and your Monday best and your Tuesday best and every day of the week and everywhere you go best, putting these gospel clothes on. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we know the weakness of our flesh. We know how much we have failed in these things. And so we are grateful that, again, you have been patient with us to teach us, to uh, rebuke us, to exhort us, to um, invigorate us, that we would, again, seek to put these things on. Oh, God, make us to be a group of Christians that exude all of these Christian virtues that were first in our Savior and demonstrated at the cross. Lord Jesus, please grant us brokenness over the ways that we have neglected these things. Grant us repentance and grant us resolve that we would put these things on now in union with you, Lord Jesus. Please give us grace upon grace to do this. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are doing it and for the small steps, maybe even imperceivable to us, that are being uh, wrought by your spirit in our hearts. We pray that you would increase it and cause us to bear fruit a hundredfold in these ways. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.